Good morning. It's the little things that make a difference. This pulpit looks cool. I like that. Would you open your Bibles, please, to Nehemiah chapter 5. And before we get into all of that, two things. Uh, Number one, because we have so many people up at camp, class situations are a little bit different. Uh, Scott is going to be filling in and teaching for uh, uh, Josh Christensen over in the Fellowship Hall, the East Fellowship Hall. My class that's in the West Fellowship Hall is going to be in here because I'm combining the auditorium class and you all get stuck with me today. So we'll bring that all together and, and work on that. And the second thing is, is I really like to try to hold to the time frame we have with our new structure. I've got to preach this morning. This is important stuff. And uh, I've got a couple extra minutes to work with, so I will take advantage of them. So anyway, with all that in mind, would you bow with me, please? Let's pray. Father, you are so incredibly merciful and gracious towards us. And Father, as we sang that song about how deep your love is, it broke my heart again. My sins, Father, and you love me so much. My sins, and you take them away. My sins, and you make me one of your children to make someone so wretched a treasure. Father, if we don't all feel that way, we're missing out. We're not paying attention. There is nothing more incredible in this world than your love for us. Help us to see that, to live in it, and by all means to share that with those around us. That's the most incredible thing we will ever experience. Thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Rodney, I was thinking, too, the the song he could have called 10,000 Angels. It kind of ends on a rather negative note. He died. And and I don't know why, but it came to me. You know how cool that would be to sing the chorus in, or the verses there, and they jump into the chorus of Up From the Grave He Arose? That's a thought. We might try that second service. Who knows? Let's study Nehemiah. Beginning at verse 14 of chapter 5. Scripture says, Moreover, from the day I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the twentieth year to the thirty-second year of King Artaxerxes, for twelve years, twelve years, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people, took from them bread and wine, besides forty shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people. But I did not do so. Because of the fear of God. And I also applied myself to the work on this wall. We did not buy any land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 Jews and officials. How would you like to have been Mrs. Nehemiah with a menu? And officials besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now that which was prepared for each day was one of us and six choice sheep. Also birds were prepared for me, and once in ten days all sorts of wine uh, were furnished in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the governor's food allowance. Second time he said that, because the servitude was heavy on his people. Remember me, O my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. A lot of times we talk about being servants, 
This text talks about servant leadership. But whether you're a leader or not, we're all servants, aren't we? And Nehemiah shows us how to be a good servant. There's a danger in feeling like just because you become a leader, you don't have to be a servant. And that's just wrong. You know, if you listen to the words of uh, make me a servant, do what you must do. Make me a servant. Make me like you. That's the way we should be. I think this chapter has hit me harder in my heart than I've been hit in a long time. And I told you that last week, and I think this one's tougher than last week, at least in its effect on me. And I hope I can share some of that with you, and it'll be uh, moving for your heart as well. Nehemiah has postponed the building, and it's the first time he had to do that. And he didn't stop when the enemy's threatened. In fact, he just told the workers, everybody pick up a sword. But he stopped because there was sin in the camp. And like I told you last week, I don't believe the Lord's going to bless you when there's sin in the camp. He had to remind them that your brothers are more important than your bricks. And sometimes we forget that. So he had a tribal meeting. He confronted the people, talked to them about bringing their sin into the camp. You know, it takes courage to confront people. I think it takes extra courage to confront those who are uh, the money givers. You know, uh, you really need them to help you out, especially when you're in a building program. You know, let's wait till the open house. Let's wait till later on, you know. But while the thing is still being built, he goes to those who are voluntarily working, those who are voluntarily helping to fund, and he says, you're sinning, and you've got to stop it, and you've got to stop it now. That takes a lot of courage to do that. But it's because he's so godly that he does that. And, and the thing that makes it even more impressive is he can say that, and they cannot come back and say, well, but look at you. Uh-uh, that's not going to work. He's going to stand up for what's right, and he's going to do that. You're exploiting your brothers. You're taking advantage of the situation. What you're doing is wrong. I think we need, first of all, to be able to appreciate the courage of Nehemiah. I want you to see that. He knew that sin in the camp was a bigger problem than having no wall. You know, and last week I told you, go back and read the story of Achan in Judges chapter 7. Uh, go read 1 Corinthians chapter 5 again and the sin among the Corinthians. You know, when, when you've got sin affecting you and influencing you, it slows you down, it distracts you, it messes up what you're trying to do for the Lord's work. Whether that's as a church or whether that's as an individual in, in your own personal life. But because he confronted them, somehow I think he felt provoked to address his own actions. Look at his own example. And, and you know, the Apostle Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, You follow me as I follow Christ. And that's what he's doing. I want you to follow me the way I follow God. Not the way you've been doing, because you haven't been following God and doing that. So, uh, Nehemiah is going to hold this up in, in verses 14 through 19. And he's going to hold up his own life, his own example. And it's kind of like, uh, check me out. I've been doing what I'm supposed to do. You all need to do what you're supposed to do. We've all felt the sting of adversity. And I believe we're going to feel it more. That's not something that goes away from us. You know, there's death, there's illness, job unemployment, tough financial situations, uh, maybe schisms in your family, all kinds of different things come up. And uh, I don't think there's not, not, everybody would say, you know, that's, that's tough to deal with. 
That's just a hard way to go. But I think there's something even more tougher to deal with. And the spiritual challenge is not adversity, but it's advancement. J. Oswald Sanders once wrote and said, Not every man can carry a full cup. Sudden elevation frequently leads to pride and a fall. The most exacting test of all is to survive the prosperity. Thomas Carlyle, a Scottish historian and essayist, said, Adversity is hard upon a man, but for one man who can stand prosperity, there are a hundred that will stand adversity. And then he would go on and write and say, Adversity is the diamond dust heaven polishes its jewels with. We need adversity. And it will be there. It's how we, how we use that and how we let it work for us. For 100 people who can uh, stand up and take the tough blows of life, there's only one who can be promoted, he said, and be advanced and keep his physical, spiritual, and moral equilibrium. Advancement's tough. Psalm 75, beginning in verse 4, the psalmist would write and say, To the arrogant I say, boast no more. To the wicked, do not lift up your horns. Do not lift up your horns against heaven. Do not speak with outstretched neck. Watch this. No one from the east or the west or from the desert can exalt a man. But it is God who judges. He brings one down and he exalts another. God provides that. Promotions don't just evolve. He says the sovereign hand of God is behind them. And and stop and think about that for a second. Have you ever wondered why uh, you're the one who's more qualified than another individual and yet it's the other individual who gets the promotion and you get passed over? Why is that? Well, it could be that maybe God knows that you or I couldn't handle that test. And then when when we get passed over, it's being done in a godly way because God is going to work out his will and we just need to let him do that. Maybe he knew at that time we couldn't handle it. Have you ever seen the sovereign hand of God at work, especially in your own life, and think, Maybe that explains why some get exalted and some don't, including me. It's very, very important that we see these things and notice them. The people of Judah definitely had felt the sting of adversity. They had been so corrupted by their former governors and the promotions they had had. No sooner would someone uh, get appointed governor, his whole attitude would change. Not only his attitude, but he would bring in his own servants, Nehemiah said, and they would become domineering. They would work everything so that they could get their way on that. Promotion had corrupted them. And and all you have to do is pick up a newspaper, watch the news, and and we see it all around us. A person has respect for this or that, and all of a sudden he's put in a place, and his peers who had respected him now don't think so much of him because they see the change. We see it in politics. We see it in the spiritual realm. Uh, You know, I've seen it in church leadership where uh, a man is respected and loved by the congregation. All of a sudden, he's made to be a a shepherd, an elder of the people. And all of a sudden, things change on that. He becomes authoritative and domineering. Promotion, advancement, success is hard on an individual. And some just can't handle it. And the scriptures are full of examples. Uh, Ask David. Well, better yet, ask some of his sons. Absalom, for example, he's brought back, promoted, rebelled against his own father, tries to steal the kingdom from his father. But as bad as that was, that's nothing compared to Solomon. 
Solomon is raised by a father who, who's shown, here's what a king needs to be and all that's involved with that. So God blesses him, promotes him to the throne, gives him every blessing and prosperity that the land had ever known. And what does Solomon do? He chases after foreign women, then he chases after foreign gods, and everything becomes vanity and emptiness. How many times have you watched men basking in the limelight and then they become blinded to their responsibility and their calling to God? It happens to preachers, it happens to elders, it happens to deacons, it happens to Bible class teachers. And it doesn't just happen to men either. Uh, women in certain areas, the same thing can happen to them. I've watched Christian men become uh, elected to public offices. All of a sudden, they begin to compromise the world. Christian businessman or businesswoman all of a sudden gets to have leadership in an area and, and the whole thing falls apart because they change. They change the way they live. But the beautiful thing is there are exceptions to that. And Nehemiah is an exception. And you and I need to really concentrate and work on the fact that we're going to be exceptions. We want to show them how the godly people are. Look at verse 14. Moreover, from that day that I was appointed to be the governor of their land, and he goes through those 12 years, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. He didn't balk at the assignment. He didn't say, you know, get anybody else, just not me. He took the assignment. He accepted the task to be governor of Judah. And when a, when a man knows and is convinced that he can be a leader among God's people, he needs to do that. There's a bug. Whoa, did you see that dude? Big old roach. Just there. <laughs> Man, mess up a good sermon, don't they? First, that won't be in the second service, by the way, I hope. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1, Paul would write to Timothy and say, if any man desires the office of an elder, it's not, boy, I've got to have that. I know I can do the work, and I know I can be godly in that. Then you go and you fill that and you take care of it. Our prayer should be that God would raise up more Christians in strategic places of service, whether it's in the government, whether it's in the church. You know, uh, what happens if we have more Christians in public office doing things? More university presidents who are made up of, of godly men and women? What happens if we have more business executives that hold Christian values? You know, one time we had a Christian who was the president of the United States. What would it be like to have that again? Proverbs 29 verse 2 says, When the righteous thrive, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people groan. And the word thrive in the Hebrew means to be made great. It means to be promoted. In other words, when the righteous people are promoted, the people will rejoice because they're going to know goodness in the land. When the wicked are promoted and made great and become rulers in the land, the people are going to know what groaning and burdens are all about. We need more Christian men and women who can handle the pressure of advancement. But... Here's the thing, when you look at Nehemiah, what's the key to that for him? I believe it's his character. And that's the second thing I want you to notice, the character of Nehemiah. When you read this text, you get the idea that his life and his rule were marked by industry. Look at verse 16. 
And I also applied myself to the work on this wall. I'm the governor. Yeah, but I'm a working governor. Such a breath of fresh air. We did not buy any land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Previous governors, their servants became domineering and, and helped go on with the corruption. Not his servants. They didn't do that. One of the temptations in leadership is to lose your singleness of purpose. You get a new promotion, you get a new raise, you get a new office, and it opens the door for all kinds of temptations and things can really go south on you. It can be easy to forget who you are and what you're doing. People who work with you, who work for you, they know if you're more interested in, than in the task that you're supposed to take care of. They can see it happen. Nehemiah said, I've been made governor, and this is a great time to get into real estate. No, he didn't. He said, I didn't buy any land. I'm not going to do that. He knew he wasn't made governor to advance his physical fortunes. You know, Ephesians 4, verse 28, the apostle Paul would write and say, you know, we need to work with our hands. Don't steal anymore if you used to do that. Work and labor with your hands so that you can have to build up for retirement and travel. No so that you can give to the ones who have need. That's why we do that. So he's out doing what was expected, but not what the people kind of expected would end up happening. One of the reasons they followed him was because he knew what he was doing, and he knew who he was following. He wasn't chasing after his own best interests. His life was also marked by unquestionable integrity. Dwight D. Eisenhower once said, in order for a man to be a leader, he must have followers, and to have followers, he must have their confidence. His integrity of life would rebuke the way they had conducted themselves before. He could say, y'all are sinning. You're not doing things right. Yeah, but Nehemiah, oh yeah. Yeah, you're doing, you're doing what's right. And that's why someone said, sometimes people can point their finger at you and it doesn't hurt. Because their own life is marked by integrity. Sometimes it doesn't hurt because you look and their life is not marked by integrity also. Point your finger at me, I'm not going to pay attention. Point your finger at me and I can look at you and say you're doing it out of love. So it depends on how you approach those things. It's a relevant, applicable teaching for us today in this passage. Privileges come with promotions, but what do you do with them? Do the privileges become perils? You get your own business. How do others see you? You get your own expense account. Do you pad your wallet? You get increased privacy. What's your behavior like? What's your language like? You don't need more today. You get privacy, and you've got to worry about what they're watching on the Internet. What do you do with that? Where's your integrity? People with titles get treated differently. And it's sad but true. You read James chapter 2. You know, a poor man comes in among you. Oh, that's too, you know, it's rich man comes in. Oh, have this seat. This is the best seat. You got to be careful how you handle those things. Temptations to manipulate others, to get our own way about things. That's what those early governors did, but that's not what Nehemiah does. Maybe one of the best things God can do for us is to protect us and spare us from having privileges. You ever thought about that? Sometimes it's not bad. Sometimes we think we're too smart and we can handle any kind of promotion. 
well, I deserve this. I'm talented, skilled, and all those things. And, you know, Solomon thought he was too. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. The apostle Paul would write and say, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Don't think you're all that. It might catch up to you and hurt you in some way. Third thing I want to point out in this text are some character helps. Some ideas that when when your integrity is challenged, here are some thoughts about what's right that will help you and me. And boy, they're helping me. First of all, right is not determined by what people allow. I think maybe the people thought, Okay, Nehemiah's the governor. He's going to be like the other governors we've had, you know, and it's just kind of going to kind of go on that way. Just because people allow something doesn't mean you have the right to get away with it. You don't have that right. When you get promoted, you find out you can get away with a lot of things. Doesn't mean you should do that. Popular, popular opinion does not prove anything is right. In America, we get the idea of thinking, you know, well, the majority said so, therefore it must be good, and, and let's go with that. I, I heard a story about a teacher asking, had a little rabbit in a cage in the classroom, and asked the kids, said, well, what do you think? you think it's a boy or a girl? How are we going to find out? And one kid said, let's vote on it. You know, voting on whether it's a male or female doesn't make one bit of difference to that rabbit, does it? The rabbit is what the rabbit is. And just because we vote and say something's got to be right because it's popular doesn't make it right. And here's what we need to learn in this country. We need to maintain it in this church, and you need to hold on to it in your personal life. God's standards do not change just because we have a three-to-one vote that says, well, they're not popular anymore. God's standards don't change. What's right may determine what public opinion is, But public opinion never determines what's right. And watch that going on among us. Watch all the things that are are taking place with that. It's true in areas of morality. Just because the popular thing is to be accepting of homosexuality and abortion and all those, doesn't make it right. It's true in the areas of ethics. Well, the end justifies the means. You know, let's just get it done. That doesn't make it right to go ahead and do it that way. Just because people let you do it doesn't make it right. And we're watching that in politics and sports and entertainment, and they're becoming our standards of judgment on that rather than God. Just because everyone before you did it doesn't make it right to do it. And just because they expect it of you doesn't make it acceptable, does it? Rights not determined what people allow. And rights not determined, secondly, by your rights. Well, I've got my rights, and that's, boy, that's the big thing anymore. Everybody has their rights. Civil rights, human rights, personal rights, 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 rights. Right. Nehemiah had the right to a food allotment. That didn't make it right for him to have it, and so he didn't. Paul would write and say he had the right to have a wife, just like Peter, the other apostles did, but he didn't have one. He said he had the right to financial support just like that, but there were times when he didn't do that. He would forego that right. Sometimes insisting on your rights is wrong. Maybe it's, uh, well, it's expedient. No, sometimes it's inexpedient. There's no advantage to that. Don't do it. 
It's wrong to put a stumbling block in front of others. In Romans 14, for example, Paul's writing about meat that's been sacrificed to idols. We know that the, the idol is nothing. We know the meat's nothing and, and all that other business. But in verse 20, he would say, all food is clean, but it's wrong for a man to eat anything that causes somebody else to stumble. It's wrong to do that. You read that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and it's a loaded passage. That's where Paul talks about having the right to have a wife and, and support. And matter of fact, he'll back it up by saying the worker has the right to expect material benefits when he has done spiritual labor. But sometimes you forego the right. Sometimes you let that go. And when he had to, Paul would make tents or whatever else he had to do to scrape by and make a living so that the church would grow and souls would be saved. We may have a lot of privileges in this world, but none of those privileges are above scrutiny. And sometimes your rights can be wrong. And thirdly, rights always show a respect for people. Anything you do that takes advantage of and exploits people is wrong, even if they have laws behind them. And we're watching in this country where we come up with laws to back up what we want to do to change good standards. And that doesn't make it right. We're wrecking the ship is what I think. When you make and exact laws that use and exploit, that's wrong. Anything that devalues and depersonalizes a human being can never be right. And fourthly, if you look at verse 15. The former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people. Right always shows a reverence for God. He finishes up and says, I didn't do so because of the fear of God, because of the respect for God. One of the problems with promotion is sometimes you lose the awe, the admiration, the respect, the fear of God. And you can't know what to do what's right when you're being guided by your pride. To know what's right, you have to humble yourself before God. There are certain situations and certain circumstances where we may not always know what to do. But you never go wrong when you reverence God and try to do right by Him. I'm, I'm amazed anymore in my Bible study at how much I find a reflection of Jesus when He said, when He was asked, what are, the, what are the greatest commands? And He said, the first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Watch how many times you see that reflected throughout the Bible. It's worded different. There may be illustrations for it, but it's still there and it's still real. We've lost that in this country. We sure don't want to lose that in this church. And I'm not suggesting that we're losing our grip on it. We do need to be reminded of it. Right always has a reverence for God. Let me give you two character principles and we'll close the lesson down. I want the men of the church, especially, to listen. Because men who have been in business sometimes get picked as leaders in the church. Men who get promoted in business and we think, ah, they'll do good in the church. Maybe not. But you are being groomed for how you're going to handle leadership and maybe it will affect leadership in the church. We've got so much talent in this church and they're being groomed in outside circumstances. 
But you've got to be careful of being groomed by business for power. It doesn't make you fit or spiritually qualified for the kingdom business with God. Climbing corporate ladders doesn't make you spiritually fit. So here's principle number one. Promotion tests your dedication to righteousness. All kinds of people are going to tell you, boy, that's right. That's good. But what does God say? Accountability to God is always our guiding point. You might be tempted to change your standards, but God is not going to change your standards, ever. Learn to be unbending, someone said, except at the knees. Always be bending at the knees. Principle number two. Promotion tests your definition of rewards. Prosperity can adversely affect your definition of what the important things in life really are. It's not wrong to have nice things, but when nice things have you, you're looking for trouble. A self-indulgent standard of living will threaten your testimony. It'll threaten your spiritual structure. What good is it if you step up in the eyes of the world, but you've stepped down in the eyes of God? What good do you have? What good is a promotion or success if it doesn't take you closer to the heart of God? Look at verse 19. Remember me, O my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. That's his last request. He was promoted to governor, but he didn't let the promotion change his definition of reward. He's involved in the present, but he's looking for a city not made with hands, looking to the future. He didn't want to be remembered as a governor who got a wall built or that he had a legacy or left his memoirs. He wanted to be remembered because he did good in the eyes of God in dealing with the people. I want God to remember me, he said, and I don't care what the history books say. And that's just not the case anymore when you look out in our society. So what happens if our nation's leaders think this way? I only care what God thinks. What happens if every one of our church leaders think that way? It only matters what God thinks. It only matters if I think that way about me, and God does too, but mainly God. His hands are building a wall, but his eyes are focused on a city not made with hands. I believe that. And I want to finish with this thought. I want to speak to all of you, but I especially want to speak to the men of the congregation. What do you want to be remembered for? For having a successful business? Being made a partner at the firm? Being promoted to vice president? making rank in the military, being the head of a department? Or do you want to be remembered when God looks back on your life and he sees the life of a person, the life of a man who says, I wanted to be right, I practiced integrity, and I wanted to give my family a heritage that says it's the spiritual things that really matter. What do you want to be remembered for? How do you handle your promotion? You know what I've learned over the years? What's said at your funeral really doesn't matter because it's what God knows that really counts. I want you to ask God this week to put blessings upon all of the talent and the people in this church who constantly have to battle the pressure that the world puts on them to help our teachers, 
the businessmen and women, the public servants and officials in this church, not to allow the duties and responsibilities of their jobs to change their standards. Thank God for the work of our hands that we can do, but keep our eyes on that city not made with hands. May our children see a mother and father who wanted most of all to be remembered favorably by God first and only. And sincerely, I can say this. If there's any spiritual need, any physical need, anything that needs to be ministered to, this is your chance right now to come and say, please help me. Tell me how to be a Christian. Tell me how to help my family improve. Tell me how I can grow in the Lord. Please pray for me. Whatever it is that you feel you need.